You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanks very much for inviting me and thanks for all your papers in this very interesting conference. Uh, I am going to talk about just one image in a manuscript rather than take advantage of what the digitization lets you do in talking about an entire manuscript. So uh, I'm sorry about that. But this image is uh, from the beginning page of the Winchcombe Psalter, which dates from the first half of the 12th century. And this is not atypical in having two different versions of the Psalms in the same manuscript. It's got the Galicum and the Hebraicum, which d differ from each other mainly in the order of the Psalms. So in the beginning page, you have two versions of Psalm 1 and two different uh, initials. So it's most typical to begin uh, a Psalter with a decorated initial B for Beatus. Uh, the first psalm begins, blessed is the man. Uh, and so here there are two decorated Bs for the two versions of the psalms. And the one on the left is the uh, most typical iconography. Is this a pointer? Will this work? Um, it's actually not a okay. but what we do have is just these under here. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. No worries. Um, so... Here we've got a, a standard author portrait. Uh, so David was credited in the Middle Ages as being the author and composer of the Psalms, and so what you often get in the initial B is the author portrait, and here he is playing the harp. Uh, and then the other musicians who accompany him uh, on his harp are shown in the other roundels in the uh, bows of the B. The image on the right, however, is much less typical. Uh, and here, what we have at the top, an acrobat performing a backwards leap, there, and uh, a woman is watching him down here. Uh, the acrobat is generally interpreted as King David because it's always King David in the Beatus initial, and most often playing the harp. Uh, sometimes fighting Goliath, sometimes viewing Bathsheba bathing. So this dancing man could well be King David, uh, and the scene is interpreted as 2 Samuel 6.16. When the ark of the Lord was coming to the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looking out through a window, and so this would be her, uh, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So the woman here is crowned, supporting the idea that she is David's queen, Saul's daughter. And the man who's performing is also wearing a sort of crown, although it doesn't have the same trefoils as hers does, which the harpist David in the other initial has the same kind of crown as she does, but the performer here doesn't. Uh, so it intrigued me, this image intrigued me because of its uniqueness. Uh, there are other images of this scene with David dancing, but they're not usually found in Psalters. Uh, this one is from uh, a century later, from France, from a luxury illustrated Bible. And here is David dancing with his harp, with his crown, not with quite the same energy as in that initial. I mean, he's not doing backflips. Uh, 
And again, Michal is looking on from her window with a pointed finger. And the fact that she watches from the window and points recalls the image. Uh, this is from the same manuscript, uh, but it's also, this iconography is found all over the place. Uh, here is Bathsheba bathing, and here is David pointing from his window. And in, uh, in both of these uh, representations, the person who's looking on and pointing is actually the one committing a sin. And the person who is uh, pointed at is behaving appropriately in David's case, or at least neutrally in Bathsheba's case. Uh, later on in the Middle Ages, she'll come in for some blame as a temptress, but at this point in the 13th century, she's not understood to be displaying herself on purpose. So uh, here she is in a Beatus initial so here's David, author portrait, but author portrait of him watching through the window at uh, Beatus bathing, and then what you see in the lower bow of the B is David's uh, repentance. Um, so I want to think what, about what David is doing in this Winchcombe Psalter image. And here and in most other medieval images of him dancing, he's fully clothed. Although there are some, uh, I don't know how well you can see that, it's a very dark photograph, but uh, here he's, he seems to be naked under his cloak, uh, or you know, possibly wearing a loincloth that we can't see. Uh, and this is a much earlier Psalter, 9th century, and again surrounded by his other uh, musicians as he sings and dances. In the Bible story, he's wearing what's called an ephod, which is a Hebrew word that nobody really knows what it is. Uh, it's often been interpreted as a loincloth. Medieval Christian sources interpret it as a linen robe. And this apparently has to do with why Michal thinks him shameful. He's wearing an undergarment. Um, and th so this is the day of his triumph in returning the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place. And that's why he's, you know, there's musicians and dancers going before the Ark as they return it to Jerusalem. And when he returns home after distributing gifts to the populace, Michal, the daughter, quote, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And biblical, biblical scholar Theodore Jenkins has understood this nakedness as an attempt by David to seduce God. So by displaying himself naked, he feminizes himself and offers himself sexually. This is not how medieval writers interpreted this scene. <laughs> the representations of David himself rely more on the story as given not in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Chronicles 15, which does not include Michal's scolding of David. It just says she despises him in his heart, but she doesn't say anything to him. Uh, but in, in the version in Chronicles, uh, there's much more of a formal ritual or liturgy involved in bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, and David is said to wear a linen robe in addition to the ephod. So going back to 2 Samuel, Michal is uh, criticizing David for behaving inappropriately for a man of his class, 
who should be dressed in a more dignified manner. She, he's, she's talking about the, the slave girls of his servants. Uh, medieval interpreters tended to in, interpret the, David's nakedness here not as erotic, but as humble. The Glossa Ordinaria says that naked means that he was not wearing the signs of kingship, not that he wasn't wearing clothing. Uh, although in all versions of this image that I know of, he does wear a crown. But um, I suggest that medieval people would have understood Michal as also calling David's masculinity into question. He's not only dancing in view of the slave girls, his dancing is something a slave girl would do exposing oneself and at least taking off one's armor and trappings in dancing is a way of making oneself vulnerable and humble. Female slaves dance before their owner to express that they're at his beck and call. Most of those historically employed or enslaved to perform erotic dances are not there voluntarily. Uh, so it has an element of degradation to it. David is humbling himself before God. But Michal thinks of it not as a humbling, but as a humiliation. And if he is indeed to be understood as exposing his genitals here, which she implies he has done, this may be tied to ideas about fertility and later on in the story. Uh, it's noted that Michal is infertile. And this may be a result of her rejection of David's fertility as expressing his dancing. But I don't think that's what uh, medieval people mainly envisioned. Uh, the, the aspect that medieval writers picked up on the most is that David was expressing joy through his dancing. Uh, like the composition and singing of psalms, dancing was a way to give praise to God, not necessarily by making oneself vulnerable or seductive, there are church writings that oppose dancing, particularly in secular contexts, but joyous dancing in praise of the Lord was a commonly evoked, if not widely imitated, part of the Psalms. Indeed, as in, in many author portraits in the Psalms, David is depicted not only composing or playing the Psalms, but sometimes dancing, even without the presence of the ark. It's an important part of his mode of worship the expression of joy in God. But what's different about this image in the Winchcombe Psalter is that David's not just dancing, he's performing a backflip. This is acrobatics. And in the Middle Ages, in the Central Middle Ages, in the time when this manuscript would have been made, an acrobat, a jongleur or tombeur, was a low-class type of performer commonly listed along with sex workers as those who should be excluded from towns, although of course they are not generally excluded from towns. Uh, the story of Our Lady's Jongleur, based on a late 12th or early 13th century French poem, originally from Picardy but made famous by Anatole France, likely makes reference to this biblical passage. And Jan Zolkowski has a book recently published on this story and its uh, reception through the centuries. In Anatole France's version, a monk who was formerly a jongleur juggles before the statue of the Virgin. Because he's uneducated, he doesn't know the proper liturgical chants. And his juggling makes the baby Jesus smile. And we, uh, there's an echo of this in the Christmas Carol, The Little Drummer Boy. Uh, 
in the medieval French poem, however, it's not the juggling that makes baby Jesus smile. He's an acrobat performing leaps, uh, just as David does in the Bible. There's only one manuscript in which this poem is illustrated. Uh, but you see the jongleur or trombeur doing a backbend very like what David is doing in the Winchcombe Psalter, except that David's head is in a much more uh, normal place for somebody doing a backflip, and this one seems to be entirely uh, twisted around. Uh, the ethos of the story is very similar with the acrobatic activities as an act of worship. Like David, the jongleur is mocked. A monk sees him performing for the virgin and tattles to the abbot. The abbot, however, replies that this man is worshiping as he can and that his worship is as acceptable or more than if he were to chant words that he did not understand. So this doesn't mean that all acrobatics would be seen as sacral. When Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century compares himself to a tumbler or acrobat walking on his hands, he does so in the sense of inversion, a worshipful humility. Bernard speaks of the delight that such a performance can give, but he's very careful to separate it from the normal performance of a, jong of a jongleur. So his is metaphorical. Uh, and uh, the normal performance of a jongleur is dissolute, and it's done to provoke lust. This would have been a fairly standard churchman's attitude, and uh, Bernard uses this to present a self-defense. He is mocked as a jongleur by his contemporaries, like David was mocked by uh, Michal for his dancing. Uh, other Christian texts also connected David with acrobatics. Uh, for example, an 11th century German Psalter where the image of David playing the harp and surrounded by his four musicians was annotated. David became a performer for the sake of religion. David then performs an inversion like Bernard. As Michal notes, he's lowering himself um, by his dance. And Michael Camille relates this letter of St. Bernard to a capital from the monastery of La Dorade in Toulouse. Sorry, I don't have a slide of it, which depicts the transfiguration with around the top of the capital uh, what Camille calls ludic activities, including wrestling, board games, music, and acrobatics. Uh, and suggests that it's playing on the juxtaposition of the sacred drama with its worldly counterpart. But when we start looking at depiction of acrobats in other contexts, we may wonder whether Michal's comments about the female slaves called up in some people's minds a further sexual context for David's performance. Laura Slater, who has written about the Winchcombe Psalter, suggests that the acrobats found carved on capitals in many monasteries and often to be thought, often are thought of as whimsies of the artist rather than illustrations of any particular story, uh, may be meant as depictions of David. And here's one from uh, the Lyonnais in the middle of the 12th century. Now in the cloisters with an acrobat bending his back, similar to the Winchcombe Psalter's David, although seen from a different angle here. And the, the caption that the Met has put on this and similar depictions uh, suggests that it is, they are amusing reminders of the world beyond the walls of the church or monastery. But if we entertain the possibility that this is 
as with other capitals, that there is a biblical reference, the possibility that it represents David, then what is going on here? Here is another set of supposed acrobats from the cloisters. And again, the Met says in its educational material that this image of naked grimacing acrobats who wrestle and pull violently at each other's beards is one of the mischievous and sometimes mystifying motifs found on corbels or capitals. John Boswell, however, suggested that this is an image of two men having sex. I will never forget a trip I made to the cloisters with a coachload of 10-year-olds. And the, the, the teacher had given them a handout with questions to answer about what they saw. And one question was about this capital and what are the two men doing. And I had to ask her whether she really wanted the 10-year-olds to answer that question. <laughs> um, Boswell envisioned these as somewhat subversive images of sex in the monastic setting. Of course, the existence of this image, even if it is as Boswell interprets it, uh, doesn't represent a formal approval of sexual activity between two men. But they, it could represent a winking at it. If the lone acrobats, as in the previous image, are representations of David, this mischievous and mystifying pair of acrobats may be someone's take on David and Jonathan. I have thought I had another image here of David and Jonathan. David, uh, of David and Jonathan embracing, uh, which is used in the Somme le Roi as the type image of friendship. Um, David and Jonathan were envisioned in the Middle Ages as very good friends whose relationship was in some ways akin to a marriage in its political aspects. Their friendship parallels in some ways David's relationship with Michal, his wife, who is Jonathan's sister. Uh, I won't go into how, uh, there are a lot of different medieval authors who talked about this. I'm going to pick just one, Peter Abelard. Abelard composed a series of six planctus or laments based on biblical figures, and the last of which is a lament by David for Saul and Jonathan. And express, it expresses such deep emotions that Peter Dronka suggests that the griefs and longings which here emerge with the greatest intensity have true and disconcerting counterparts in the autobiograph autobiographical Historia Calamitatum and in the correspondence of Abelard with Heloise. And Abelard and Heloise, of course, had a sexual relationship and married. And Dronka suggests that elements of that autobiographical situation have been carried over into the Plunctus. David refers to what sins, what crimes have sundered our innermost parts, which Dronka explains as a shared agony of guilt and relates to physical aspects of love, uh, similar to the shame and remorse which Abelard said he felt in, when he and Heloise were parted for the vile corruption he later regretted. This line, well, I don't want to spend a lot of time taking issue with Peter Drunk's Latin. I mean, I think he, we can trust him as an interpreter of medieval Latin, and I think this line at least leads, leaves a door open to a queer interpretation. Uh, this lament is also, contrary to what one of the recent translators has said uh, about David and Jonathan's friendship being non-gendered, I think it's very gendered. It's a lament for a warrior. 
It uses the language of bloodshed, of defeat and conquest. David bewails that he was not present for the battle in which Jonathan died so that he could be, quote, a partner in your triumph or a comrade in defeat so that I should either snatch you back or fall to your death with you. This is the love of comrades in arms. Nevertheless, the parallel to Abelard and Heloise's love points to uh, an important resemblance. For this Christian writer, the deep and intimate love between two men, comrades in arms, could resemble that which would be found in a marriage, and that may imply some level of sexual involvement. So I'm not suggesting that Abelard or the monks who commissioned or viewed the corbels and capitals or the artists of the Winchcombe Psalter thought that David's sexual love for Jonathan was uh, was a thing, was licit, was to be celebrated. But I'm suggesting that these tantalizing fragments make possible a queer understanding of David and Jonathan's relationship. Not only was David's love for another man arguably the greatest passion of his life, at least in terms of the language that he uses in the Bible, we may expect that despite the official emphasis on Bathsheba as the partner with whom he sinned, some artists and writers were alluding to a sexual sin committed with Jonathan, for which David, as a leading exemplar of penance, uh, would also have repented. Medieval people would not have thought all acrobats, jongleurs, or performances engaged in same-sex relationships. Nevertheless, I would cite the example of Richard I, Lionheart, and his relationship with Blondell, which, uh, which uh, William Burgwinkle has written about as being you know, a love relationship um, emphasized by the presence of a jongleur. But even if they're not marked out as sexually deviant, jongleurs were in some way suspect, and David's association with them, therefore, has a number of levels of complexity, not all involving performing for the Lord. So the image of David in the Winchcombe Psalter, then, is uh, on the surface shows us a wife scolding her husband for behaving inappropriately, and has can be interpreted as a biblical theme about women not understanding the true relationship of men to God, and Michal is later punished for this. But in depicting David as an acrobat, it also implies a whole load of illusions that monks at least would have recognized, again underscoring the multiple meanings of medieval manuscripts. Thank you.